Welcome to this recording of the Activist Lawyer Podcast, brought to you from the Granite Podcast Studio in the heart of Newry City. We are delighted that you could join us at Activist Lawyer, where we will be discussing a range of topical matters engaging not only with lawyers, but people who are committed to highlighting and combating injustices and inequalities. We will bring you our thoughts, but invite you to share yours. We'll be looking for contributors to our blog at activistlawyer.com, as we want your perspective as we unravel and unpack a host of issues. My name is Sarah Henry and I'm a solicitor practicing in Newry City. I worked with a human rights firm in Dublin for many years and with a number of rights-based organisations and charities. I'm looking forward to meeting some fantastic guests throughout this series. Hello everybody, thanks for joining us today in the studio. I'm here with Jack. Hello everybody. Yeah, so we have a really interesting and insightful um, episode or episodes. We're going to divide this into part one and part two because we'd so much to cover. Actually, we didn't fit it all in. No. So we're hoping that this guest come ba- comes back again to the studio here and joins us. It was Professor Phil Scraton, who many of you will link to the Hillsborough disaster. And we're recording this in the context of a recent um, ruling around the criminal investigation of the Hillsborough disaster. So for those who are listening, some background information on our guest today. Phil Scraton is Professor Emeritus at the School of Law, Queen's University, Belfast. He is widely published on critical theory, incarceration and children and young people. And his books include, but are not limited to, In the Arms of the Law, Coroner's Inquest and Deaths in Custody, Prisons Under Protest, The Incarceration of Women, Women's Imprisonment and the Case for Abolition, and of course, Hillsborough, The Truth, which we'll get to in our recording. He's co-authored many reports too, including some for the Northern Ireland Commissioner for Children and Young People and the Northern Ireland Rights Commission Women in Prison. He led the Hillsborough Independent Panel's research team and was the principal author of its 2012 report, Hillsborough, and was seconded to the family's legal teams throughout the 2016 to 20, sorry throughout the 2014 to 2016 inquests. He is a consultant on and contributor to the 2017 BAFTA winning ESPN BBC documentary Hillsborough, and he holds the Leverhulme Fellowship addressing the unique work of the panel and the legal processes that followed. We will be getting into that um, throughout our podcast. He was also a member of the Justice Working Party into inquests and public inquiries, including when things go wrong, the response of the justice system in 2020. So I hope everyone enjoys today's recording and happy listening. Thank you so much for joining Jack and I at um, Activist Lawyer. That's a great pleasure, Sarah. Thank you for the invitation. And for taking your time out. I know you're probably in, in demand and um, very busy at the moment. So it's a real pleasure to have you. And I guess we'll get started. We've had our introduction, um, Jack and I, just to give some context to listeners about yourself and also about the background of um, some of the issues we're going to talk about today. But first and foremost, and probably something that will take up most of today's conversation, will be around the criminal trial which recently collapsed um, involving the Hillsborough disaster, which many of our listeners will be familiar with. So just to provide some brief context before we get into it, um, it involved the trial of two retired police officers and a solicitor accused of perverting the course of justice following the Hillsborough disaster. Um, And this collapsed, wasn't it, last week? After the judge ruled there was no case to answer. It had been alleged that there was a process of amending statements, and this is really crucial, to minimise the blame apportioned to South Yorkshire Police 
following the disaster at an FA Cup semi-final in April 1989, where 96 Liverpool fans died. And it was Judge Justice William Davis who said the amended statements were intended for a public inquiry into safety at sports ground led by Lord Justice Taylor. But that was not a course of public justice. So while the judge, and I think he did acknowledge, just reading his statements, the anxiety and distress suffered by the families and survivors, he goes on to say that he he has to determine whether there is evidence to support the particular criminal offence with which these defendants had been charged. And in concluding that there is not, that is all he had to do. So, Phil, it seems the ruling rested on a very technical point around the intended use of these statements. And, I mean, surely this was known earlier. So, how, I mean, how, how did you feel to hear this? I think, Sarah, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, it's, it was uh, known for so long that, uh, these the review and alteration of statements, and there's no question that the statements were reviewed by uh, officers, a team of officers in the mm-hmm. South Yorkshire Police, led by a senior officer who was one of those charged, in consultation with the head of management services of the South Yorkshire Police, who was one of those charged, and in association uh, with the solicitor, for um, for the South Yorkshire Police, uh, and he um, was also charged. And that process itself, his name is Peter Metcalf. Mm-hmm. That process um, was that they had committed acts tending or intended to pervert the course of public justice, and they did that by reviewing and altering police statements. Mm-hmm. Of course. Uh, the solicitor, Peter Metcalf, he claims uh, that he was simply in an advisory role mm-hmm. suggesting those uh, statements that should be reviewed and altered. Now, you might be concerned that I'm using the words review and alteration, but I have here in front of me a set of those statements. And on the front of the letter that accompanies all of those statements from the solicitor, to uh, David Denton, who was head of management services, mm-hmm. the words review and alteration are used by Peter Metcalf. So they're not my, yeah. if they're not my or anybody else's words. They are words that actually were used to describe the process uh, as, as it developed. Now, mm-hmm. I have seen so many of those statements because it was me who actually discovered them. And I went to the House of Lords reading room where I accessed all of the statements taken by the uh, police in the the immediate aftermath. And I just need to give that some context. Mm -hmm. Police officers are usually, after any event, they make notes in their pocket notebooks. They were instructed not to do this, but to take blank sheets of paper and write out their recollections of what had happened on the day. Those recollections were then typed up. They then went through a process that I've just described of review and alteration. This was done internally in the South Yorkshire Police prior to the West Midlands Police Officer external investigation coming in. It was in that fallow period just between the the, the, the two inquiries. Mm-hmm. And so, 
these statements went then into a typed up and then the team of officers, the review and alteration team, under one of the defendants, went to each of the police officers in turn who, whose statements they wanted to review and, and alter. And they then went through the statements with each officer and they made the alterations that they agreed were appropriate. Yeah. If I give context to this, one of the officers who eventually I accompanied to a later investigation, one of the officers had 54 sentences removed from his statement. Wow. And he had that against his will. Uh, and I think that when we look at this process, whatever its technical uh, appropriateness in terms of whether it's, it, it satisfies the demands of uh, criminal investigation or it was done for a public inquiry or some other form of inquiry is irrelevant. The issue really at the heart of this is whether the course of justice was going to be compromised or perverted by that process. Mm -hmm. And I think the general public would be really shocked yeah. to believe that a process such as that involving a very senior lawyer and senior police officers um, was appropriate. Yeah, wow. It's very shocking. So that's the, that's the, the nub of, uh, of, of the process. Now, the one other issue I, I would like to make to begin with is that this was known. The process was known, established well over uh, almost three decades when these charges were brought. Mm -hmm. And the charges being brought in this case and the delay in bringing the case to court, which has been the best part of four years, has meant that nobody, including myself, has been able to publish anything on Hillsborough. Yeah. The Hillsborough Independent Panel's website has been taken down. And so there has been a virtual silence. Dan Gordon's uh, BAFTA-winning film, Hillsborough, mm. has not been able to be shown. Mm. And so throughout this period, there has been silence yeah. around Hillsborough and yet, when we look at the ruling, and there are seven points uh, to Justice Davis's ruling, um, when we look at that ruling, the guts of that ruling would have been known well before the trial. Yeah. In other words, if the ruling stands, which it does, mm -hmm. then the question has to be asked, why on earth was it considered appropriate to bring these men to court? Mm -hmm. And that also has to be put alongside the appropriateness of the most expensive investigation, criminal investigation, in legal history in the UK. God, it really, A massive yeah. amount of money has been spent on pursuing the criminal justice process mm -hmm. and on the, the inquest, particularly the second inquest, an investigation team upwards of 200 officers mm -hmm. and a, an independent um, 
Office of Police Conduct team also involving numerous officers. We're talking here about around 300 to 400 officers at the height investigating this process after the Hillsborough Independent Panel's report. And so that is since, you know, that that is since 2012. And it's lasted for years. And we now are in a situation where the only conviction has been for a minor safety offence against the chairperson of Sheffield Wednesday Football Club, the ground at which this semi-final was held. So what you can see from this is a pattern of obfuscation that has gone on throughout this period and has led the families to believe and the survivors to believe that there would be successful prosecutions when, in fact, that was never going to really happen. Yeah. And, and the, the very final thing I want to say on that is that at its initial stage, the prosecution was, or they decided that there would be, or they put forward to um, the Solicitor General the, the fact that there would be perhaps 24 prosecutions of police officers. And that went on behind the scenes. Their names were never published. And they were just those who were left alive. A lot had died in the meanwhile. And the only charges they brought against police officers on the day was against David Duffinfield, mm-hmm. who had been the match commander. And, of course, the first trial was a hung jury. The second trial, um, it it found not guilty of the charges that were directed against him. So we're left with this one minor charge being successful and all of that investment of time, effort, criminal investigation has led to no uh, resolution, uh, no criminal justice resolution. Mm -hmm. There's so much there to pick up on. I mean, and so many different points. We'll probably touch on a couple of them as we go through, just to kind of get your opinion. Yeah, Felon, you, you talk about the, the length of the investigation and the trial and stuff, but one one key point that we're specifically interested in, and I know a lot of people have questioned it as well, is the timing of the ruling. Um, for such, as you said, such an obvious legal point, um, why were families left for, as you said, four years, and how important is the date and the day of the rule, and how important is that? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, I think it was really quite unfortunate that uh, Dominic Cummings was giving his evidence um, in <laughs> to, to to the select committee, and uh, I was watching that happen when uh, the. Um, the evidence was um, interrupted and they skipped straight to the studio to give this announcement. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it was strange that that happened. It's kind of definitely um, buried to a certain extent the ruling. But I mean, whatever, whether that was purposeful or not, we will never know. But what I do know is that they allowed the prosecution case to go the full term. And it was after the prosecution case had been delivered that they then that the the judge then ruled uh, on the submissions of no case to answer, yeah. and that in itself I think came as a real surprise to the families and survivors. They expected that the um, the case would go its full time. They didn't expect 
that uh, the submissions by the defence lawyers would actually uh, amount to an abandonment of the trial. And I think that um, what immediately followed was reprehensible because uh, a very senior QC who represented the solicitor Peter Metcalf, the senior QC is Jonathan Goldberg, um, he he came outside court and um, he made a response uh, that was on one on the one hand understandable. He said did not even have a case to answer at the end of what is to be said to be the longest and most expensive series of criminal investigations ever mounted in Britain. Mm-hmm. Well, he's perfectly entitled to that opinion. But then he 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 adds. Money would have been better spent on building new hospitals or schools, perhaps in Liverpool. Sure. That comment was at best gratuitous. Yeah. But then he went on to comment that uh, false allegations of a cover-up had dogged his client, mm. that there had been allegations whipped up, amounting to what he called a witch hunt. And this continued to resurrect the same old tired accusations of prosecuting three old men. He then went immediately from the court to a Radio 5 uh, interview with Adrian Childs, and he made the following statement. My client was accused of covering up criticism of the police. What he, in fact, did was cut out criticism of Liverpool fans. whose behavior was perfectly appalling on the day, causing a riot that led to the gate having to be opened. That unfortunately let people in and crushed to death the innocents, as they were, and then he talks of the dead as being complete innocents who were at the front of the pens, who had arrived early and were not drunk and were, well, were behaving perfectly well. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to say that the families had been wound up with these awful political statements that had no basis in reality. Mm-hmm. And there had been nothing like it in 32 years. It's a complete conspiracy theory. Yeah. Now, what he was saying was a contradiction of what he knew. And it certainly was not borne out by his opening statement in the court. Mm -hmm. He was well aware that there was no riot outside or or inside the statement. And the other issue, which he should have known because he will have read the Hillsborough Independent Panel Report and my work, was that people died regardless of their arrival time in the pens. Over a third of those who died came in through the open gate, gate C. So what he was doing there was returning us to the earliest allegations way back in 1989, made primarily by The Sun, but also other newspapers, that there was widespread drunkenness, fans attempted to force entry en masse, and many of them without tickets. All of those theories have been debunked. Yeah. All of those theories have been kicked into the long grass. Yeah. But what is even more insulting, and this has really hurt the families, is that his allegation that they had been wound up to accept politically motivated allegations that had no credibility. Mm-hmm. But he provided no content at all of what he considered to be political statements and then went on to argue that there had been a conspiracy theory. 
And I think that this was a, a remarkable statement from some somebody who, without doubt, I mean, he is a senior QC. Yeah. He would have known the full story. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, um, that was really significant. Uh, he said that his client's role in reviewing police statements and recommending alterations focused entirely on the inclusion of those parts of the statements which laid great blame on allegedly drunken or disorderly Liverpool fans. That is just not true. No. That is just not true. You know, it, it, what, what he actually did in this was he went through and he redirected the entire case towards um, responsible or the, the, the review and alteration process. Re- went to the heart of redirecting the case towards Liverpool fans' responsibility. And I mean, and the fact that that was aired widely and statements like his and other similar statements must be so disheartening to the families and survivors, particularly when they and journalists based in Liverpool, you know, people like yourselves, were silenced in a way that was so unprecedented and never heard of before in the history of any type of trial or inquiry like this happened. That, Th- yes, that in itself yes. must really shake people to the core. Yes, I mean, that's that's clear, Sarah, absolutely. I mean, if I summarise, he, he made these statements that Liverpool's behaviour was perfectly appalling, it had caused a riot, innocents were crushed to death, those who died at the front of the pens had arrived early, which is again untrue because of the funneling situation down an unsafe terrace. Many of those who ended up at the front of the pens had actually come in through gate C. Yeah. Um, he then implied that those who entered because the police had been forced to open a gate, mm-hmm. an exit gate, um, had uh, arrived late when they hadn't. I mean, Eddie Spirit, whose son died in his arms, and Eddie passed just a few years ago, and a very good friend, a very articulate man, uh, Eddie had stood back outside the stadium when he saw that there was no policing of the crowd outside, and he waited until he could gain entry, and he went in through Gate C, and his son died in his arms. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, you know, his his lack of, uh, of, uh, of accuracy yeah. is, is stunning. I mean, perhaps it's worth just, briefly giving a, a view of what really did happen at that moment that he was denying. Yeah. First of all, the build-up of fans outside the turnstiles was caused because half of the stadium's capacity of over 50,000 had to enter through a limited number of turnstiles located at one end of the, of the stadium. Mm-hmm. All the sums have been done, all the maths have been done concerning what rate of flow that was. It meant that the crowd arriving in the half hour before the match, or three quarters of could not have got in until quarter past three, 15 minutes after the kickoff. This is all well known. The access area to Lettings Lane turnstiles was a known and previously identified risk. I have the reports that identify that risk because of near misses in the previous years. It was confined by a high wall on one side and railings above the river on the other. Unlike the modernized turnstiles at the other end of the ground, these turnstiles had lasted throughout the century. They'd never been modernized and regularly malfunctioned. So that slowed the passage of fans in. This was the reason that there was a buildup in this very tightly confined area 
at that end of the stadium, which is still there for anybody to go and see if they wish mm-hmm. to, to, to question what I'm saying. The police outside the stadium, whose responsibility was to regulate the crowd, paid to filter, failed to filter or steward fans as they arrived. These factors caused overcrowding in this known and confined area, and it preempted the match commander's decision from the control box inside the stadium, and he could see this on his monitors, to open gate C. Gate C is an exit gate, and fans are going into a stadium with which they're not familiar. They go in through an exit gate, children with their parents, and they went in in an orderly fashion. There was nobody to receive them on the inside, no stewards, no police. There were police officers milling around, but they didn't do anything. They looked ahead of them, and I've been to the stadium, I know it well, and there ahead of them was a tunnel with the word standing above them. What they didn't know was that by going down that illegal one-in-six gradient tunnel, they were going into the backs, not of a terrace, but of two central pens on that terrace, which were already full. And they couldn't see that they were full from where they entered. So they went down and they were now in an unfamiliar um, environment and they had no way of knowing that the Lettings Lane Terrace um, had restricted access or egress. And of course, the pens were, had um, fences at the side, a high fence at the front with just one gate to each, small shoulder-width gate to each um, to, 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 to each pen onto the terrace. Mm-hmm. And they went down know, not knowing what the police knew, that those pens were already full. I mean, one of the most remarkable photographs of this is that it's taken from the West Stand looking down into the pens. You can see that those two central pens are absolutely packed tight. But to the side of them, the side pens, where they could have been right redirected to, People are sitting on the steps in the sun reading the newspapers. So, you know, all that really needed to have been done was for the tunnel, as it had been in previous years, to be sealed off. And it would have only taken two or three police officers to redirect the fans to the side pen. But that didn't happen. Didn't happen. Then yeah. police officers on the track failed to, to act to open the perimeter fence, gates, so that as people were dying in front of them. And, I mean, the allegations that then follow of drunkenness, ticketlessness, collective misbehavior were unfounded. And, of course, what I discovered was that where, where did those allegations come from? They came from a local news agency called Whites, mm. run by three brothers. Um, and they were made by a senior police officer, a local conservative MP, and the then chair of the local police federation over the three days that came before the publication of the Sun's notorious, the notorious, um, headline. notorious yeah. headline, The Truth. Yeah, yeah Phil, and we obviously you're, you're touching on the impact of, of the media. And from the outset, um, obviously the, the next day after, after the event happened, the Sun and other media outlets took a, a clear stance um, that it was the faults of the fans and they came out with uh, some allegations about what the fans did and how the fans acted. How important and significant do you think this was on the investigation as a whole? I think it was massively important, but what's important about the media is when people talk about the media, they, uh, they often say, well, you know, 
why why don't journalists do their job? Why isn't a greater investigation? And I go with all that. And, you know, in my very first report, which was published in 1990, I go into detail into exposing some of the worst uh, excesses of the media at that time, particularly um, particularly those comment pieces written in uh, broadsheet newspapers, you know, uh, not just tabloids. Uh, so the media was important. But what is really significant is we must not take our eye off the fact that the media was open to manipulation. Sure. The media fed off the stories that were given to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, only last night I was in a Zoom call with uh, survivors where we're able to demonstrate precisely how statements were constructed, who constructed them, which police officers spoke to whom, and so on. Mm -hmm. And this was an orchestrated process. And I will give you just one quote that goes to the heart of this. On the day that the Sun newspaper, which was the Wednesday after the disaster, published its scurrilous headline, The Truth, and let's, be, let's remember that uh, the headline that was going to be used was Use Scum, and that was, the uh, editor, Kelvin McKenzie, was talked out of using that and used the headline, The Truth. When that came out, that morning, and I have the minutes of this meeting, uh, the Police Federation had a meeting uh, in a local restaurant to discuss what the next process should be for their members, the South Yorkshire Police membership. Now, halfway through that meeting, in an unprecedented move, the Chief Constable arrives, Peter Wright arrives, never have attended a Police Federation meeting. And he says, uh, there's a lot of stuff that he says in this meeting, but the one thing that is so significant is that he says that he is to leave the story to the Police Federation of the South Yorkshire Police because clearly as Chief Constable, he can't make the interventions that they can. Right. Now, that is remarkable. It's there. It's in the minutes. It it's absolutely clear. It's verbatim minutes. And what he is doing is he is giving carte blanche to the police federation to go out and, and um, sell, not sell, I don't mean sell, give their story to, uh, to, to the media. Uh, their interpretation of the events. And we have to remember that this is being done just as Lord Justice Taylor's uh, the Lord Justice Taylor's inquiry is being set up, and just as the West Midlands Police inquiry is being set up, the external police inquiry that would always happen in a case like this. So this was an internal process alongside the review and alteration of statements to shift blame, to shift yeah. responsibility. I mean, it's it's just it's thirty years of absolute frustration, and it's so infuriating that it's something that you relayed there. I mean, there's evidence to show what happened. You gave us some, you know, fantastic their contact text in regards to what happened on the day, but thirty years of turning something that could have been dealt with, and I hate to say the word simply, um, it seems out of context, but really the facts were there, the findings were made in a number of reports and it was also clear um, after investigations 
which showed you know who was to blame and it indicated that there were attempts to cover matters up yet do the families have justice I mean I think it's fair to say they don't although that word what does it mean in this case it brings me back to thinking here about the the past number of weeks were the Bally Murphy inquest. You know, we saw the headlines splashed along papers here. I'm sure you, um, you know, had a good read at the decision uh, around the victims there who were declared innocent after 50 years. I suppose my question is, what does justice mean for the survivors and families of Hillsborough and also, I suppose, other inquiries like Grenfell and also Bally Murphy? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I'm just, I'll, I'll just give you a flavour, uh, very briefly, a, a very brief flavour of what happened next. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we had was a criminal investigation, a set of police officers who were uh, who, who, who were tabled for prosecution, and then the CPS decided against prosecution. We had inquests, the initial inquests, which found, uh, which delivered a verdict of accidental death. Um, by which the families had uh, had to pay for their one single barrister against a barrage yeah. of barristers uh, employed for all the other interested parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came to accidental death. I wrote two reports, the second major one in 1995, and then I discovered the review and alteration statement. I published my book in 1999, the first edition of Hills for the Truth, mm-hmm. and it was serialized in the Sunday Mirror, and it blew the lid off the whole review and alteration of statements, and I thought, this is it. And nothing happened. So for the next 10 years, nothing happened until we get to the Hillsborough Independent Panel, of which I, I, I was the primary researcher and primary author of the report, and the researcher was based at Queen's University in Belfast with my my research team, Mm -hmm. and that completely changed everything. 153 findings um, exonerated the fans, and it led to all that has gone since, including the the new inquests, which delivered an unlawfully killed verdict, Mm -hmm. and had 25 riders, which laid the blame at the responsibility at the doors of of um, of all of those who were in authority, but mostly the South Yorkshire police. And then we get to the, the criminal investigations. Yeah. Now, that's the story. That, that's the story in a nutshell. And it's incredibly frustrating now to hear families and survivors saying we failed, when in actual fact, the Hillsborough Independent Panel findings mm-hmm. and the findings of the longest inquest in legal history actually found in their favor. That, they, that, that those who died had been killed unlawfully and they laid the responsibility at the doors of those, of, 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 of those in authority mm-hmm. and exonerated the fans. Now, that is transferable, and I understand the question perfectly. Uh, I, I, I was there at the, as the coroner, she gave uh, her long uh, verdict on Bally Murphy. Mm-hmm. And of course, I've known and uh, worked with uh, Bally Murphy families. Um, I live in Belfast, and I've known and worked with Bally Murphy families over the years. Yeah. I think that the verdict was r- remarkable in the sense that it wasn't a short-form verdict by any means. It was a long narrative, mm-hmm. and it went into all of the details of 
how those who died had been killed. Uh, quite clearly, that they had all died, uh, or but one they could determine were definitely killed by the British Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got to the, she got to the end of the verdict, and of course, what she did, as we all know, was she exonerated completely the reputations of those who died. Yeah. So those who died in Ballymurphy had had not been involved in any activities. They were going about their business in a normal, everyday way, and they had been shot dead by members of the British Army. And this was clear. And, of course, this exoneration of of innocence, which the families have known all along, and most of the people who know the case have known all along, was now recognized in the coroner's court. Mm -hmm. And I sat there and I waited for her to state that, therefore, those who died had been unlawfully killed. That is the appropriate short-form verdict. The narrative is fine. And, of course, the exoneration is fine and very welcome by the families. But the lack of a short-form verdict, as there had been in Hillsborough, where it was decided that those who died at Hillsborough had been unlawfully killed, there was no short-form verdict for Bally Murphy. And that, for me, you know, I think that verdict means everything. I think that it means, quite obviously, what it says. That if they were killed by bullets fired by the British Army, then they were completely innocent of any offence, and there was no ambiguity in that, then the only conclusion any reasonable person can draw is that they were killed unlawfully. And that was never delivered. So it was a bittersweet moment for me because obviously I, I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to congratulate the families on their long campaign. And of yeah. course, when we're talking about families in these situations, we have to remember they are not the original families. Many of them have died on route, died, uh, you know, broken on route, and that's the same for Hillsborough or any of these long-term events. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to say to the families, who are mostly the descendants of those who died, and some of them are brothers and sisters and children, um, you know, this was a great and important moment, which it was, but it's also, for me, tempered with the fact that that short-form unlawfully killed verdict doesn't exist. Yeah. And I think that that is, 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 is something, for me, that remains anomalous. Yeah, I mean, bittersweet is definitely the word that sprung to my mind just when I was reading uh, the verdict on that. And just going back slightly to Hillsborough, what happens next, Phil, in terms of, I mean, I know that was the criminal case, but are there civil proceedings or is there going to be any other process, um, you know, to continue this further? There have always been planned civil proceedings and they, um, and there is a team, who have worked on that, and I've worked with that team mm-hmm. over the last 10 years, actually. Okay. But they have to wait till all of the criminal, um, well, first of all, the inquest and then the criminal proceedings uh, have been exhausted. So now uh, the uh, all the domestic remedies in that sense have been exhausted. So we go to the civil case. Okay. And I think one of the issues that the families face and are concerned about is that in the court of public opinion, this will be judged that they are 
seeking to gain um, remuneration uh, for the deaths of the loved ones from a long time ago. And in actual fact, I can state quite categorically, knowing the families as well as I do, that that is not the case. They are going to the civil court because they want to see, uh, as best they can, the um, establishment of liability uh, proportionate to those who are who acted on the day. So it's one thing to have uh, an unlawfully killed verdict with different organizations held responsible, different organizations held responsible uh, in a coroner's court, but that responsibility should be now uh, demonstrable in a civil court where you apportion responsibility in respect of damages. Yes. Now, you know, Families have said, we're not looking for money. We want to make this clear. We're looking at, at this as being the only now court left open to us yeah. to actually establish, uh, to actually establish um, liability proportionately. We already have it in the inquests. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been established across the piece of the different organizations. But now we want it recognized in a, in a civil court. So that's the only, uh, unless further, and I doubt if it will, uh, further um, evidence became available, and I think I have access to almost all of the evidence, so I cannot see there being a, a further criminal case. Okay. So, so it's the civil cases that now will be in train. Yeah, Phil, and you talk about the the long process. So obviously, there there has to be lessons learned from the Hillsborough disaster and everything that that came of it. How, uh, and then we look at the Grenfell um, event or disaster. How will these proceedings um, affect the Grenfell investigation? Um, can lessons be moved from the Hillsborough disaster to the Grenfell event? Well, again, I've I've um, had conversations with the Grenfell Action Committee and I know uh, some of the legal teams very well and uh, obviously have had um, discussions on points of law but also on the process. Uh, Grenfell, the one thing that Grenfell did learn very, very clearly from Hillsborough was when the Hillsborough inquest opened um, alongside the 7-7 bombings in London uh, the families were allowed to give statements to the court at the opening. In other words, each family came forward and gave a statement about their loved one. And uh, who that? It, it was to humanize the case. These are the 96, but what we're talking about here is, is Jim or Mary, and they were able to do that. But because it was an inquest, they were not allowed to make any statements that in any way could uh, touch on liability. So there was a real frustration in that. However, in Grenfell, uh, because this was a public inquiry, in Grenfell, they were able to say what they wanted. So in other words, what we saw over a three-week period were families coming forward and making a statement about their loved ones, but also contextualizing the death and giving, in some cases, heartfelt uh, experiences of their own escape from the fire. And so it wasn't simply uh, a testimony about 
the status and reputation of their loved ones. It was actually about the context in which they died. And that was so significant. And I think that that, that is, that, that idea of opening statements is, is, is clearly, and particularly in something like a public inquiry, uh, where there are no restrictions on what can be said other than libel, libel um, that in that situation, uh, that's one of the that, that's one of the legacies of Hillsborough. But what what I will say was that once the case got underway, and we're now in the second phase, um, I think there is frustration from families that they don't feel that that view that they held at that point, even though they might have good legal representation, they don't feel that that view, that personal view that they had had, had yeah. at the beginning has been seen through. And the example for that is that in the second phase, um, it's been accepted, Morbrick, the, 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 uh, the chair, has accepted that there should be two assessors working with him to give their, their opinions. One is a safety, uh, uh, safety assessor, the other is an architectural um, assessor, both of which you would expect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The families wanted a family representative to sit with him. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that has not been allowed. And, of course, I, I understand there would be a major problem about trying to associate who that person might be. Mm-hmm. But you can see which way this is going. But if this is a, a genuine public inquiry, and this is as goes to the heart of my critique of public inquiries, if this is a genuine public inquiry, they feel very strongly that not only their lawyers should be representing their case, but there should be people who've got direct experience of what happened in forming, mm-hmm. you know, at least in an advisory role on the panel. And I think that that is, you know, that is one of the crucial, cru- crucial lessons. Yeah. And, and it has been, you know, it has been developed in, in other situations, what we now know as people's inquiries, mm-hmm. which are unofficial inquiries that are held. Um, and Michael Mansfield, for example, QC, is, is, is a great advocate of yeah. this, Absolutely. where you establish a people's inquiry that has much less restraints of the official inquiries. Of course, the big problem it faces is it doesn't have any automatic access to documents. But what it does have is a forum in which people come and tell their stories. So uh, to, to round that point off, on, on Jersey, for example, where there was the scandal over children in, 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 in the, in the Hauptlager-Ren home, uh, in that situation, um, they set up a public tribunal afterwards because there was a denial of giving them a public inquiry. Mm-hmm. And there were three people brought in to head that, and people just came forward and gave their evidence. Mm-hmm. Just gave their evidence. Uh, there were, I think, 13 different um, focuses for that um, established at the beginning, and then the people's inquiry gave their, their view at the end. And what's interesting about that is that Although it carries no weight in terms of the judicial process, it carries considerable weight in terms of people feeling that their stories have been laid to rest. Yeah. I mean, your work on 
is, that's testament to your work on Hillsborough, which was obviously fundamental and crucial to the findings that come out of it. And it also may not be widely known that your involvement with Hillsborough wasn't didn't commence when you started um, working on the panel, but it was really in the aftermath of the event itself. Yeah, and it's obviously been a long journey for you, Phil, and obviously the families involved. But I know that's the end of the criminal trials, but we'll keep a keep an eye out with the, the work that you do around the Hillsborough. But also, I know that you work in other areas, um, which we'll touch on in part two of the episode. So everybody, that is the end of part one. We hope you enjoyed. Um, and if you keep an eye out on our social media for part two, which will be released in the next couple of weeks. So thanks for listening, everybody. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.